Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by my co-host, Jim Rooney. This is Toe the Rubber, episode 336 on our network. Before we bring Jim on, I just want to thank two groups of people. One, our listeners, 55,000 and climbing, 74 countries, grassroots MLB front offices. We appreciate your support. Give this show five stars. Make sure you write some great comments afterwards, because we battle the analytics of the podcast world just like they do in Major League Baseball. And also, our newest partner, we start our marketing uh, project today where we have several companies, I should say dozens of companies, sending proposals in for us to look at. But our very first partner, we'll always remember our very first partner, Blackout Coffee. To our listeners, subscribers, if you go on to Blackout Coffee and you type in David, capital letters, D-A-V-I-D, number 20 after it, you'll get 20% off your purchase. Great company. Their slogan is be awake, not woke. Um, we've had a whole bunch of listeners uh, already go in and support our our newest friends right there. And I'm actually going to be meeting with the CEO on Saturday in Tennessee to say hello and get to know them a little bit better as we grow this partnership, hopefully. But I'm drinking my blackout coffee right now in my blackout coffee mug that my father-in-law gave me last night by accident. So, um, but Jim, welcome back to your show as I digress there. No worries, Dave. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning, yeah, good everybody. Morning. We uh, get some getting a little bit more brisk weather out here in the Southeast as we get closer to, as we are enter November. But, uh, you got a great show in store for our audience today, and uh, two really uh, cool things you're going to start with. One is because uh, we do have Jim Palmer coming on our show tomorrow. We had a triple header yesterday. started with Burt Blylevin, then Kevin Kernan, and then Jim Cott. We had Hall of Fame Tuesday yesterday, and then uh, Palmer, uh, Jim Palmer will get close to ending our week here on Thursday. But uh, you've got a Jim Palmer story, but you also had, as all these happenings are going on in MLB, albeit the playoffs or the World Series last night, the, that was a debacle, and uh, some of these new hirings, firings, rumblings, uh, you had an enlightening uh, from yesterday all the way through today. And uh, But whichever one you want to start with, you go right ahead. Okay. Thank you, Dave. Yeah, I'm, uh, you know, I'm a day-to-day. I'm not necessarily one that jump up on a soapbox and eulogize about different things and stuff. But a couple of things occurred. I saw that uh, uh, tomorrow you're going to have Jim Palmer on, and of course it brought back memories of me being in spring training with the Orioles and, and meeting Jim Palmer and uh, all the help that uh, he sent my way when I was younger. And uh, in thinking of the stories, it just triggered some other thought processes that uh, have to do with some of the things we've discussed here on this show. So the first one was that one day, this might have been Jim Palmer. I was in 1982. I was in Hagerstown, Maryland, playing for the Hagerstown Suns, A-ball uh, affiliate for the Orioles. And uh, Jim Palmer was recovering from some back issues, and he came to make a uh, rehab start in Hagerstown. Now, I had a little bit of a history with him from spring training, but um, he makes the rehab start, and... By all thoughts, you're thinking, you know, he's going to throw his 
a lot of innings or pitches that they want him to do to see how the back's going uh, before he makes a start back in Baltimore. And uh, you figure he's going to come to town, little Hagerstown, Maryland. He's going to drive in. He's going to throw his innings. He's going to do his work with the trainer, and he's going to get in his car and drive home. But um, he saw I was uh, I was on the pitching chart that day because I was going to pitch the, the following day. And when Jim Palmer was done with all his work, he came back and he sat down with me and he was just discussing different aspects of, of the game of baseball. And the one topic that stuck with me is he was discussing on how starting pitchers pitch deep into game and workload. And besides all the physical aspects, you know, that you have to do in your training and in your development and your conditioning, uh, he spoke about the mental aspects of it. And part of what he gave me was a little guideline that he said, you know, early in the game in the first three innings, your goal is to go out there, especially in that first inning, and establish your fastball, establish your fastball, you know, command, move the fastball around, see how the hitters are reacting to your fastball on that day because you've gone through the lineup once. And then continue to further your game plan based upon the knowledge you already have and the understanding when you came out of the bullpen, what kind of stuff you had on that day. But then he made an interesting point that I had never heard anybody say before. He said, the problem with a lot of um, young pitchers is that they now go into that third and fourth inning and and they think they've been through the lineup once and they're going to make adjustments in their pitch selection or pitch combinations and what their, you know, their game plan would be. And usually they make too big an adjustment. And before you know it, they're out of the game in the fourth inning. And the key point that he said to me was that, you know, hitters haven't necessarily made any adjustments to what your stuff was on that day. So why are we making a drastic change in what our game plan should be? Why, why are we getting people out by, uh, locating our fastball and and using our other tools up, down, in, out, front and back. And we're having very good success. And then all of a sudden we drastically change um, our philosophy, our game plan. And I'll I'll give you an example. So you pitch it with your fastball um, as guys all the way back to Hall of Famer, Robin Roberts once said, the best two strike pitch is a well-located fastball. And you're, you're having success. And next thing you know, your whole uh, philosophy on attacking that hitter when you're ahead is going with your breaking ball, going with your curveball. Or you're working in and out on that day and things are working very good. And next thing you know, you change the game plan and it's all up down. What Palmer was trying to state to me was that there's no need for a drastic change. What you do is you just camouflage it a bit. You introduce different factors different pitchers, locations, um, changing of speeds. So you throw the hitter's timing off and you make the hitter think that you've made an adjustment, but yet you're still getting them out with the same key pitches, the same pitcher's pitches that you executed early. And through the next three innings, then you have a slow, gradual changeover. And then by the seventh, eighth, and ninth, he said, you know, by then it's survival and it's uh, being mentally tough. And it's understanding at that point of the game what's working and how you're getting hitters out. And then you're going to do what you can. So um, 
this threw into my mindset, you know, this whole co- concept of workload. But it also made me remember back um, when I was doing the pitching coordinator job for the Brewers. We had a couple of pitchers in uh, AAA. And they had pitched in the big leagues a little bit. And they were possibly now maybe on their second or third, sometimes fourth different organization because they're just looking for that little magic formula to get over the hump. And instead of being a AAA pitcher or a 4A pitcher, um, be a guy that could stick in the big leagues, you know, for hopefully three years and qualify for a pension. And uh, one of the traits that they all seem to have, no matter what kind of stuff they were, whether they were finesse pitchers or, or what I call tricksters or, uh, or power pitchers, they all seem to have great success for the first three innings. They're having a good day. And in the fourth inning, they had a, ma- a major change in their game plan because they felt that the hitters were going to make adjustments. They actually feared the thought of the hitters making adjustments even before they perceived that a hitter was making adjustment. And they switch a lot of times to their second, their, their second or third best pitch as their out pitch. And next thing you know, they're out of the game by the fifth inning. Yeah, so it's predetermined is what you're trying to say. They, they uh, what do we say? Uh, well, I hear pitchers say this all the time. Make them earn the right to see pitch number three. You know, don't just, don't just start going to that same in basketballs too. Your wife would probably say the same thing. Stick with your go-to move until they force you into your counter move. Make them earn it. Exactly. Exactly. And um, so when you go along those lines, you know, there's, there's two parts of that story. There's, there's, um, if your stuff was good enough to get them out for first three, why are we making drastic changes? That's the one side of it. Okay. And learn how to camouflage your stuff, learn how to, uh, maybe introduce a little bit more of your third pitch as a let them see it type of thing. Uh, change ups down in front of the plate, um, breaking balls a little bit off the plate, uh, tease them and tantalize them a little bit, but you're still going to go up with your out pitch. You're not necessarily going to change that, you know, until the hitter actually makes an adjustment. Um, and it's adjustment that you see. It's not a perceived adjustment. It's not a thought that they're going to adjust. It's adjustments that you see. Um, but the other thing that triggered in me was this, this concept of workload. And uh, here's where I earlier said the, the use the word eulogize. Um, the funny thing about a lot of what I see is that um, – Many times baseball issues mirror societal issues. Um, and uh, like I said, I'm not looking to stand on the pulpit here, but for example, before we even get into the societal issues, many, many times I can tell you that a pitcher's delivery matches their personality. Whether, whether it's slow and deliberate, it's quick and herky-jerky, you know, different things. And there's nothing wrong with that, but the pitcher should then understand that, that that's his individual rhythm and timing, you know, that really shouldn't be messed with. So you think of all the young coaches out there that either are trying to slow somebody down or speed somebody up. Uh, a famous child psychologist once said to me years back when he was a, a client, when I had my uh, training business, he said, always remember, Jim, a leopard will never be able to change its spots but it does have the ability to start to understand the spots it has. So when you look at a pitcher and his delivery, yeah, there are adjustments he can make to improve his rhythm and timing, 
but you're not going to change him from a slow, deliberate delivery to a fast, quick delivery, or you're not going to change the pace of his action or the speed of how he does things. And a lot of times it mirrors his personality. So as a coach in that instance, it's better to actually work with his personality to understand how his brain and his mind functions and how he makes decisions and how he perceives things than actually try to mess with changing some physical things of what he does. I like that. Now, did you see something in the games last night or um, what, what triggered this? Um, no, it, it was just... Um, that's was, interesting. I've never heard that said before. It was just the thought of Jim Palmer, you know, and bringing me back to, uh, you know, sitting with him on that day, uh, you know. Um, I mean, I'll be honest, I, I've been lucky enough to sit with Jim Palmer many times. Um, after my second uh, shoulder surgery up at University of Massachusetts Amherst with Dr. Pappas, Farmer was rehabbing his back once again with Dr. Pappas. And three times a week, we happen to be doing our rehabs uh, at similar times. I've had lunch with him. We, he talked baseball. Um, I mean, it even goes back to in spring training when you'd go over to big league camp Um And sometimes the start of it is, you know, you're just basically shagging BP or like I've told in the past, Ray Miller would say, uh, go go shag out in left center and you look up as you're jogging left center and Flanagan and McGregor are out there. So you realize, you know, keep your mouth shut and pay attention and see if you can learn anything. But in in those days in uh, Royal Spring Training, during BP, Jim Palmer would play center field and he would – he he catch as many fly balls as anybody else out there. He'd be running all over the field. So he would use batting practice, you know, as part of his conditioning. And, you know, the guy was a, quite an athlete. He was a gazelle. He, 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 he could run down balls in center field like when you'd sit there and watch Paul Blair do it. It was just out, outstanding to watch. I think people forget that, you know, to, to do what pitchers have to do, for now, I, got, I was going to say 100 plus pitches a game, but now it's more like 70. But they've got to be tremendous athletes to repeat that over and over and over again. And I think we we forget that. And then I, I sometimes I don't think the pitchers nowadays help themselves in regards to that. Um, they don't, you know, they don't hit anymore, obviously. Um, so you don't see them running the bases and even fielding right now. We've almost taken that away. Like they're not fielders anymore out there when they, they should be. So I, 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 uh, I'm not surprised when you say Jim Palmer doing that. I, mean, I think Mariano Rivera most recently is probably one that we, we, we thought and remembered. But uh, I don't know if I see that as much anymore. Well, I think in just like any position in baseball is, you know, uh, players follow the money and then they focus on the limited things that they think are going to bring them back the most money. Uh, you're not necessarily talking about a whole bunch of well-rounded uh, baseball players nowadays. But um Getting back to Palmer, so when when you first went over to big league camp uh, for your assignment, um, some of the things that would happen was the uh, at that time they didn't have uh, minor league pitching coordinators, but we did have a roving pitching instructor. Uh, each team didn't even have a pitching coach, um, so the uh, the roving pitching guy was uh, we used to call the big chief Kenny Rowe pitched for the. Uh, Los Angeles Dodgers back in the sixties. And, um, he'd say, uh, Hey, Rones, just uh, do me a favor. 
when you go over to Big Glick Camp, just make sure one thing, don't get in Jim Palmer's way. Okay, fine, you know, and at first you didn't necessarily understand what that meant, but then when you saw him running around catching every ball in center field, it was like, you know, don't go running around to get a ball. I mean, Jim Palmer's going to catch everything out there. Just let him do his thing. It's part of his program. So one day I'm on the, uh, I'm on the, uh, I'm on the bag, you know, on the bucket behind the, the big screen behind second base, and all the balls are being retrieved and thrown into me. And there's a pop up that's going to come right down to me. And uh, but I had a feeling that Jim Palmer was on his horse and very quickly was going to close ground. So I kind of stepped aside, and Palmer come running by, caught the ball. And then instead of throwing it to me, he just walked up to me and handed it to me. And he said, uh, hey, how do you know uh, Mike, meaning Mike Flanagan? And I said, uh, oh, I I don't really know him, um, Jim. I just I just met him. Uh, but the scout that uh, signed Mike Flanagan, John Stokey, also signed me. Um, when he uh, signed me, he was uh, at the time considered the national cross-checker for the Orioles, um, lived in upstate New York. Flanagan was from um, uh, Massachusetts, New England area. Um, so I said, you know, besides Mr. Stokey signed both of us and I'm left-handed, he's left-handed. Um, you know, some people, I guess, have compared, uh, you know, our body types and how we throw and stuff. Um, you know, but that's about it. I mean, I know stories that when People used to scout him. They would, they'd want him to throw harder. And why is he pitching instead of just cutting it loose? Because they wanted to get those good radar gun readings and different stories like that. And he goes, uh, oh, really? So he said, so where are you from? And I, always, I said, well, I was born in New York City in the Bronx and, and went to high school in the suburbs. He goes, oh, I'm, I'm from New York. And I said, yeah, I know that. And he goes, how do you know that? And I said, um, you're... Jim Palmer. <laughs> and I said, you were born in Manhattan and then your adopted, adopted parents eventually moved to Phoenix. And, and he goes, that's amazing. You know, all this. And I said, well, uh, I, you know, I'm a baseball fan, even though you were the Orioles and I, me growing up, uh, you know, I was a Yankee fan, but you know, of course. And, and next thing you know, Jim Palmer's, you know, standing out there in center field having a conversation with me. And I think it was from that point that, you know, he, he would just, it, it was never something like, uh, hey, listen up, I have something to say, or um, here, here's a lesson for today. No, no, it was, it was just, it was casual conversation that gave you insights into the different things that um, you would do to become a successful starting pitcher. Um, I remember watching one of his rehab starts and, he started throwing that slow curveball, and you're standing, you know, you're sitting in the dugout. And a lot of times in the past, even if you were doing a pitching chart, you did it from the dugout. You didn't do it from the stands. And and you're amazed, like like a slow pitch volleyball, a uh, slow pitch softball pitch. And then you see the fastball that just rides up on the guy's hands, and then that thing dropped in, and you started to get to an understanding that you saw it firsthand. Oh, that's what up down means. That's what front back means. He, it starts to, you know, make sense as far as the conversations that people have had with you about what a pitcher's tools are or how we should attack a hitter. Um, but the thing about it is, you know, even if you look back in the, in the history books, 
of starting pitchers in that era, regardless of uh, what kind of stuff they had, we're talking about many different styles of pitching back then. You know, guys like Palmer and Catfish Hunter and Tom Seaver and uh, um, uh, Bob Gibson and, 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 and a lot of those guys, you know, from the 60s into the 70s, I mean, they're multiple 20-game winners. And I know the game is different now, but um, there had to be a reason why even when they were asked to do something like that, they were successful at it. So it, it, it brought up this concept of workload. And um, the thing about the workload is I can remember story, a, a story um, that was told me back when I had the personal training business in New York. Um, and uh, the story came from the, the hotel industry, uh, which, of course, was a very big in New York, still is. And the fact that a lot of uh, Irish immigrants, Irish uh, nationalists were coming to New York still at that time, and they were extremely well-educated, master's degrees, PhDs in, in different areas of, of how you know European education system is. And they were taking jobs, um, entry-level jobs in the hotel industry. Maids, uh, chefs, cooks, all kinds of things. And uh, especially at that time, the hotel industry was, um, you know, you could, you could graduate from Cornell University Hotel School of Hotel Administration um, and, you know, want to go to work for Marriott and you, you would take an entry level job and then move up the ladder. And how the story was at that time was a lot of people were graduating U.S. institutions, universities, and not wanting to take any of those entry level jobs. And this opened it up for all the different, uh, if you would call immigrants at the time, wanting to do it. Uh, so... For me, then I'm starting to draw the parallel of workload and us losing the ability to mentally and physically do work. Uh, this is one of the things that uh, I started to equate to baseball and, and as far as pitchers and their mentalities and their physical abilities. Um, and then, Dave, it, it led into um, – I've heard you speak many times over the NCAA transfer portal. Um, and, you know, you've talked about basketball. We, we've had the conversation about Deion Sanders and Colorado football. But I read a couple articles, and it was people's opinions about the changing shape of, uh, of college baseball, NCAA Division I baseball. And not not that we're talking about the large sums of money from collectives and NIL and everything for baseball, but just the premise that a lot of these um, Division One schools, their coaches are starting to make a pretty good amount of money. And what goes along with making a lot of money is you want to continue to make a lot of money. You don't want to lose your job, especially – you enjoy that money coming in and the lifestyle that it affords you and your family. So more and more these programs are basically going with juniors or seniors. 
Uh, not a lot of developments going on with the freshmen and sophomores. And more and more of these um, juniors and seniors are coming into programs from either transfer portal or junior college, where you're going to arise in junior college transfers. So think about the concept of workload. On both the player's end and the coach's end, when you look at that environment that we're going to the transfer portal or we're going to junior college transfers to then bring up uh, fully developed juniors and seniors to attempt to win baseball games, it's all a quick fix. It's eliminating a lot of the work. It's eliminating a lot of the process in order to be successful. It's looking for the immediate instant gratification, the shortcut. Um, players uh, on one end are looking for more and more player playing time in order to develop, which you can understand. But when you see different players that are now on their third or fourth program, you know, there's something, there's something up there. Um, and it just gets back to my thought process on workload, the ability to do work both on a mental and a physical level. Um, I was just wondering, in, in, in your readings and, and the things that you've been discussing with uh, some of the other podcasts, have you started to stumble across these different things where you, you believe the transfer portal and these type of things are affecting college baseball? Sorry, Jim. I was talking on mute there for a little bit. Okay, no problem. <laughs> I had a good, I had a good uh, soliloquy going there. Sorry, um, but uh, the uh, the transfer portal. I was saying, yeah, affected. It's affected baseball a ton, probably more so than any other sport because you've had baseball. Uh, you had the COVID year, which log jam rosters, rightfully so. They got their their uh, their year or two years back. Then you have transfer without penalty. Then you have Major League Baseball deciding, ah, let's reduce the draft. So now you've got more guys log jammed in there um, without having rosters expanded. So it's it's really, uh, you know, and then now they have the NIL money. So it's really, it's hurt baseball in the sense where um, it's it's created a scenario where the, the, the low D1s, if you call them, the D2s, are now glorified junior colleges. So, and even the, the less powerful let's call them power five or the next two conferences. Those guys are there for a year. Um, if they don't like what they've got, they either transfer laterally or down below to get time. And if they do do well, they get plucked up by a power five who doesn't want to deal with an 18 year old freshman. And, uh, 
and they want a 20 year old, uh, you know, seasoned guy who somebody else develops. So people are afraid to develop players now because of that, because if they develop them too much, they're going to move on, which is, is, is sad. If they develop them not enough, they're going to move on and go somewhere lower or lateral because they're going to have somebody in their ear. And, uh, well, we've lost our way. And uh, that's just a piece of the pie, though. But I, I, I threw out the others out there. And sorry for the, the 24 to 30 seconds of silence in the middle. You're probably wondering, like, wow, he's never been silent before. I had myself on mute. No, no worries. But, see, we may not classify that as a societal issue, but it, it, it's an issue that um, – the external environment or the structure in which we're, we're functioning now starts to dictate uh, the development process and then the c- competitive process and the athletic process. Um, so that's where it goes hand in hand. And, and, and I, I continually refer to it as workload. And um, not that I have any documented research, but I mean, there's plenty of literature out there about, forget about just athletics, but in all around life, day-to-day life, that the benefits of work, putting in a good day of work, accomplishing something. I mean, you can go online and at Facebook or anything else, there's all kinds of advertisements for uh, these journals and these daily planners, and we have a new way of doing it. And our our psychologists have come up with a way that when you write these things down, it's an it's a quicker trigger into your brain and your mindset so that you can accomplish more things. Now that, on that right there, I don't mean to cut you, you're big into psychology and I know you, you've got a great mind and, and you're well-read and great education on that part. That's, that's a piece right there that people, that's what makes people that teach dangerous in a way where like something simple like that, where we're told from a young age, right, write it down and you'll remember it. I spent, you know, my formative years of education doing that until I got into college and I started examining myself. I have a learning, I won't call it, I'll call it a learning ability where when I write stuff down, I forget it. It goes out of my head. So I use it as a way to flush my brain. If my brain's full, I'll write it down and get it out of my head. So other people, they write it down, they remember it. So just so I, I took you off on a side street there, but, uh, no, um, but my, my overall point here is that, um, on a daily basis, you can look things up and start to understand where all the research and all the people that uh, uh, are having conversations about uh, uh, mental skills and developments and and the ability to do work and the ability to accomplish things is all basically based upon, you know, you, you plan your work, you work your plan. But the key word there is work. And workload then is the culmination of all the work that you do, and then hopefully of all the work that you accomplish that you're successful at. And we we've eliminated that from much of our, if you want to say, from our society to our uh, uh, to the structure of baseball, to the structure of amateur baseball, uh, college baseball, and professional baseball. And and here's the weirdest twist of of, of all. And this is where it relates to um, the young ball players in our audience and the parents in our audience. Um, we, we now, baseball is now in a, in a system where we overwork the young amateur ball player. Uh, examples, uh, a 10-year-old kid pitching three times on a weekend. Um, 
we, we do things that really don't make any sense whatsoever, except for the reason of winning games so that we can have rings or, or, or championship T-shirts or coaches can say that they have the greatest program to help them in recruiting what they do. But the key here is that I, I do not know it of a high school coach or a little league coach or a travel ball coach that has an actual investment in any of those young players. But the structure in which we're asking them to function is, especially on the pitching side, is you're going to be overworked. Now, from investment, you're talking like, if you get hurt, it's on me type of thing. Or well, really. I, mean, I mean, unless uh, – Unless in some travel ball instances where there's, uh, you know, the star player on the team, the coach doesn't want him to get hurt, uh, or maybe the star player is playing for that team for free on so-called scholarship, or, you know, maybe in, uh, um, and, and, and I, you know, we see that in all levels. But even if that guy gets hurt, they'll just replace him with someone else. See, we, we've we've gotten into it, it's this crazy blend of, um, on the amateur side, of we don't really take much stock in the in the uh, the concept of workload. We overwork the young player, and then we move into professional baseball, where now the monetary investment on all these guys that were drafted specifically high, and we underwork with pitch counts and all kinds of other things, we underwork our commodities because we don't want them to get hurt. Okay. And then if they get to the big leagues and they get hurt, we now have a mentality of, well, the surgeries and the rehabs are getting so good that, you know, he'll be back in a year. In the meantime, we'll replace him with somebody else. So we've got interchangeable replaceable parts. Uh, We have where there's large investment, we then say, you know what? We've invested a lot of money in this guy. If he becomes uh, an all-star starting pitcher for us that pitch deeps into games and we train him properly and develop him properly with the mental and physical st- skills to handle workload, we're going to be way ahead of the game. No, we don't, we don't take that long-term, uh, that long-term look. We, we take the outlook of um, immediate gratification, short-term game. So he pitched, uh, he pitched 50 innings in double A, but all the ranking systems and baseball America and all the other things that are on all the social media have him ranked as the number two pitching prospect in all of baseball. Hey, we've accomplished it. And then they get to the big leagues and they haven't thrown a hundred innings yet in a minor league season. And now we're, uh, in the big leagues and he has turned out to be a stud and he's one of the main pitchers on our team. And he's going to be one of the reasons for our long-term success, hopefully over the next three or four years. But we're in the second half of the season, we are um, skipping his start. We're limiting his pitch counts and we're doing all the things because to the public, it seems like we care to the public. It seems like, well, we're monitoring his workload because he hasn't ever pitched more than a hundred innings so far in his young career. And we, we pull that off as if that's what's natural, if that's the way it's supposed to be. So I rambled a bit, but uh, that's what uh, 
those are some of the things that were going on in my mind the last couple of days. Once I heard Jim Palmer was going to be uh, a guest on one of the podcasts tomorrow, it was this whole concept of workload and how we really have it all backwards. Um, and in dealing with young players, um, it's amazing. It's amazing what, uh, what we're putting these young kids through. And uh, sometimes we know what we're doing and we just don't care. And sometimes it's because we just don't know what we're doing. And that's the sad part. Um, I like the point where we overwork these young kids. And there's obviously, like you mentioned, there's there's no investment in them. So what the heck um, with some of these programs. But we underwork the guys that are prepared to actually work, which is the adults. And it is it is really backwards. Did Palmer's wind up match his personality? Um. I would say so. Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. Um, you know, um, not that not that I'm going to say I'm an expert on Jim Palmer because, um, you know, I've had a handful of conversations with him and different things. But, um, you know, the I mean, he's still doing oral games. And I, I'm sure any of the oral fans out there that even listen to him to this day, uh, he's very intelligent. He's mild mannered. Um, he's very well spoken. He presents himself extremely well. He's a very nice person, and yet, um, you know, the the inner John, Jim, uh, Jim Palmer is quite a competitor. And um, the reason he was so good and perfected the things that he did well, it like anybody who's reached success at those, those higher levels, it's that, uh, you know, deep down inside, he's an intense competitor. Um, but on the surface, it's almost like, well, it, if we're talking about his delivery and, and his style of pitching with that slow tantalizing curveball and that fastball that rides on your hands and different things, it's almost like he's long, lulling you to sleep and then, uh, and then knocking you out, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, fair points. Uh, yeah. I thought that was interesting at that, that point when I talked earlier about I hadn't heard the, the, the way you put it, personality matches delivery, which makes sense, but um, that you should get to know the personality of the pitcher before you start tinkering with their delivery. I thought that's a great point for all the, the uh, instructors out there. Yes, but once again, that takes work. No, yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> so this is the conundrum that we're stuck in here. Yeah. So – um. So with any, anything, I, I always say you've got to understand a kid's learning and socialization patterns in order to kind of create that ecosystem around them to whatever the, whatever the, uh, whatever they're trying to learn, whether it's pitching or math, whatever it may be, it's all, it's all the same pattern. So I think great points today. Very, very well put. Yeah. So since we went on about workload, part of, uh, my original thoughts today was we're heading into the, uh, a lot of the travel programs. And even the high school uh, fall programs, you know, end up, uh, finish up at the end of October. And then we head into November. And, uh, you know, for places up in the north, northeast and the cold weather states, uh, it's not as accessible for a large group of individuals to then, you know, necessarily play baseball year round. Um some of it it's accomplished and they continue to throw and work on things because there's indoor facilities and indoor practices. Um, but going back to our conversations a few weeks ago with Vinny, Vinny Perez, 
I mean, he stressed the importance of time off, um, even if you want to call it active rest. And if we take, uh, going back to last week, if we take some of the uh, uh, thoughts and concepts from uh, periodization programs and annual periodization programs, even if the rest is an active rest, uh, baseball players should now in the, in the month of November at a minimum um, get away from baseball, do something else, hang out with your friends, um, you know, still be active, uh, but give yourself time. You know, if you want to say your baseball muscles, give yourself time uh, to recuperate mentally and physically from the, you know, the game of baseball. Uh, we've always talked about the importance of focus and feel in baseball because it's a repetitive type sport. And since it's so highly repetitive, both mentally and physically, you need some time off. Um, ultimately, in a perfect world, you know, there really wouldn't be fall ball. And um, hopefully you're playing another sport. Um, cross country, you don't want to play tackle football, flag football, something. Or just if you started your training. Let's say you started your active rest uh, a little earlier and then as you're moving in November, you're in your you know, off-season conditioning program. Um, the key to this entire thing is that usually on the, on the annual schedule that most of us um, are kind of part of in with the, with the indoor facilities, high school programs having the, the ability to work out uh, earlier in the year before it even warms up. Programs down in the South obviously don't have to worry about that. Uh, travel programs, you know, they play a fall program and then they pick up a spring program. Um, some of these travel programs with indoor facilities in the Charlotte area, you know, then, then want you to come to their, uh, their conditioning and their things that they do. Um, some of them make it mandatory. We'll discuss that in a little bit. Um, but you're usually looking at somewhere around March 1st as the beginning of that uh, spring program, meaning uh, for the school teams and even for the travel teams, um, you know, the travel ball, they have tryouts in the fall to, to lock you in so you play with them in the spring. Uh, but somewhere around March 1st, especially for pitchers, you're probably going to be up on the mound throwing a bullpen or or um, trying out for your school team or whatever it is. You're going to do something where you're going to have to get up on the mound around March 1st. So when you look at the different age groups, um, 9 to 12 years old, usually they can get ready in about four weeks three to four weeks. I'm going to take it as four weeks. So if you go back from March 1st, that gives you February 5th of uh, the upcoming year, 2024. In the 13 to 14 age group, you're looking at five to six weeks to properly prepare. Um, remember, in these age groups, those pitchers are now starting to throw multiple type pitches. Uh, more secondary pitches than the younger group. So there's things that need to be done. Uh, they also are moving into the area where they're 
their uh, skeletal maturation, their physical maturation is, is reached a point where you could start applying rotational resistance type work into it. So the training programs get a little bit more in depth, a little bit more time consuming. So if you go back five to six weeks from uh, March 1st, you're looking next year, 2024, around January 22nd to January 29th. And then uh, for the age group of 15 to 18, we're now expanding it out to seven, eight weeks to get prepared to get up on the mound. And again, March 1st next year, you're looking at January 8th to January 15th. So when you consider that in that 15 to 18 age group, if you want to say high school ages, um, January 8th to January 15th, that doesn't really live a lot of, uh, leave a lot of time for an off season when you consider that they just finished their travel ball or their fall ball just before Halloween. Uh, and, and, you know, some of these programs are still going to play next week. And some players have invi- been invited to these all-star type tournaments that are in November, later in November. So you really don't have a lot of time. And to think that, excuse me, <coughs> in your annual schedule, that off-season conditioning, you know, e- even if your strength and conditioning for 9 to 12-year-olds is uh, – is calisthenics or, you know, uh, uh, crab crawls or, or bear crawls or any of those type of uh, exercises, even if it's mobility type activities, speed and agility, uh, working on your footwork, there there's some things to do that uh, are going to be beneficial for your long-term health. And now, you know, we don't really have a lot of time with the way these modern schedules are set up. So the thing that um the thing that I like to do is I'm going to have a uh, off-season conditioning camp from no the week after Thanksgiving to the week just before Christmas. And I I meet with the players twice a week. I think at this age group all the way up through high school, you know, some high school players will be physically mature enough to wear if you wanted them to work out three times a week, I understand. But a lot of what we can be done can be also done in you know twice a week or full body type activities. But you know, two times a week, three times a week. So I, I meet with them twice a week um, for four weeks. So it's eight sessions, and I teach them the different ways that they can work out and the different things that they can do on their own. Um, some of them come to me. Uh, this is the second year I'm doing this. Some of them come to me and they have the uh, financial ability through their parents to, uh, you know, go to a specific baseball workout uh, facility or strength facility and, you know, pay three or $400 a month and, you know, to go lift and work out or go to the gym. Uh, others, you know, don't. Um, so I try to make this as inclusive as possible. And and to be honest, you know, not necessarily slanted, but try to make sure that the the people that can't necessarily financially afford a lot of these things to uh, have a way to accomplish them on their own. Um, and due to that, that's 
reason number one that I include, I include a lot of kettle, kettlebell work in my off-season conditioning program, initially because the financial investment for a parent is to go uh, to the store or you can even go to these uh, $5 or dollar stores and you'll walk in there and they'll have light dumbbells and light kettlebells. And when you're talking about a 9 to 12-year-old, I mean, you know, a 10-pound to 15-pound kettlebell is is plenty. And a lot of these programs that I do are designed, you can get them done with one kettlebell. And so the startup cost for a family is, you know, $20. Um, you know, we're not looking for uh, some high-end competition kettlebell and all these other stuff. You're, you're just looking for a basic kettlebell. And the beauty of it is once you uh, – with kettlebell work, a lot of times, let's say I start off with a 15-pound kettlebell and I'm doing doing the exercises and doing them successfully and I'm looking for successful completion of repetitions with the proper movement patterns uh, and the efficiency of movement. And, uh, okay, it's time to, you know, get more. I got to go buy another kettlebell. Well, you could slowly amp up your, your rep schemes to do some higher reps, um, for the younger guys, because that's another way to increase workload. And, um, you know, for the younger guys, you're, you're not doing it because we're looking to, uh, see how much tension, uh, we can apply on the, the ligaments and tendons. And no, we're, we're doing it because we're, we're trying to learn efficient movement patterns how to hinge properly. Um, you know, there's not a day goes by that I'm not either talking about hinge work or the ability to hinge properly, whether it be online or on Facebook or, or at the facility I work at. Um, so, I mean, a basic workout, even if you're, whether you're doing it Monday, Wednesday, Friday, three times a week, or Monday, Thursday, twice a week, whatever it is for you, you're basically, you're going to do a squat variation. You're going to do a push variation, a pull, and a and a full body. So, for example, you can do a you can do a goblet squat where you hold the kettlebell um, in front of your chest with both hands and do a regular squat. You can do a, a single kettlebell shoulder push press where little little bend in the knees and you push forward single kettlebell bent over row and a kettlebell swing. And then next workout, if you want to do the same because you're getting used to the movement patterns and things, that's fine. If you want to switch it up to a single kettlebell split squat, single kettlebell lying chest press, some chin ups and a single kettlebell deadlift, well, you're set. So it's not, it's not this deeply complicated concept here. Um, in fact, one of the, one of the great, uh, strength coaches in the United States and in all strength sports, uh, in the history of the, of United States and competition, Dan Johns, I mean, he, on his podcast, he's, he has spoken about, you know, if all else fails, if you can do a kettlebell swing and a, and a one hand kettlebell press, or even a one hand kettlebell press while you're down in a lunge position, you know, you don't really have to do a lot more. Uh, 
he has spoken about training high-end athletes and he doesn't go through all the different athletic testing as much as he did before. He said, you know what? Uh, I grade out people on doing a simple farmer's walk, you know, or, or what I call carrying two suitcases through the airport. Uh, we're talking about grip strength, upper body strength, shoulder stability, hingeability, lower body. I mean, it's just, it's, you know, and obviously he's dealing with high end strength athletes. So, you know, that farmer's walk might, might be with a hundred pound kettlebell in each hand. But the point is that it doesn't have to be this very complicated thing. And, uh, it's, it's one of the things that I, I warn all parents and, and young players is that when you, when you meet someone that makes things out to be extremely complicated and the only way that you're going to be able to do that and learn this and move ahead and be part of this process is because you have to do it my way. And I'm the one that you need to, uh, you know, continue to have contact with and continue to join my programs. Well, um, in my opinion, that's not the professional you're looking for. Um, that's uh, that's one of the key points I tell parents when they're selecting a, again, I don't care what it is, the, the teacher, the coach that tries to make you think like, um, almost create their their presence in your world like it's a drug. They've got to have you. You need them all the time. Don't want that. That's the guru. The teachers that you want are the ones that you get the impression that I want to make myself obsolete. I want to make you your own pitching coach, you your own. Just come to me when you when you got something fine, need fine-tuned or you're in trouble. But uh, I like that's a key point. I'm sorry to interrupt. I want to make sure our parents understand that that is a key takeaway today. Yeah. And, and, and like I said, you know, uh, basically you're looking at closed chain kinetic exercise. We've talked about compound movements, you know, working the prime movers, it's strength based. So we're looking at successful completions of the movements of the repetitions. Um, I stated one of the reasons why for this type of work, I, I use a lot of kettlebells, but kettlebells also, it's the, it's the process of creating force and controlling force. You can work unilaterally. It's closed chain movements. We're working the prime movers. As I said before, it's inexpensive. It only takes one kettlebell to start. Um, But this key point of uh, creating force and controlling force, um, we've spoken in the past, very similar to the uh, martial art of Aikido. Um, That's what you do on the baseball field. And and this is something that we've we've gotten away from. for example, the um, currently in this World Series, the outfielder who's on fire for the Rangers, Garcia. Now, I'll be honest, I haven't, uh, with my busy schedule and different things going on with Halloween and stuff like that, I haven't sat and watched many of the games in their entirety. But the swing Garcia took, and all of a sudden, I haven't heard an update, but I did, did hear this morning they took him off the roster, so he has some form of oblique injury or something like that, right? Um, there's there's an example. Now, I, I'm not trying to pick on Garcia. And I have no idea of his training mechanism and everything. I just know he's a gifted athlete and extremely strong and powerful. But that's an example of creating the force and then not not necessarily controlling it on that swing, and that's where the breakdown is. Now, of course, it's 
it's a long season and the workload and, and muscles get tired. And when they get tired, they shorten and a lot of diaper things. And then you ask them to do something and, you know, um, you get a little bit of a breakdown. But that's the concept of creating force and controlling force, not only for your performance, but for your health. Um, I got a question for you. You brought this point up at the beginning where sports mirrors society and the world when right now kind of the theme of, uh, of our talk today. But, you know, we, we, we all agree that the player today is probably physically stronger, probably looks better in the uniform, you know, just they, they give that appearance of being a better athlete and we've defined it as, and we've all said it at one point, they're, they're better athletes today, but I'm, I'm a product of, Ooh, I played in the, the late nineties. You're a little, you're a little bit before me. I don't ever remember, even though we would be considered lesser athletes in terms of, you know, the, the strength today, I don't ever remember a guy tearing an oblique or injuring themselves to that degree, performing a function of the game. So I think, do we, do we have to, has our society gotten so bad with, you know, redefining things like they're the greatest athletes? Do we, do we have to redefine what a great athlete is? Cause that's, I can't, I don't remember that ever happening. Right. Uh, well, I'll, I'll tell you a funny one along those lines, Dave. Um, the year I worked with Sparky Lyle um, in the Atlantic league. Now understand that the time, Sparky was probably 56, 58 years old. Um, you know, he hadn't played baseball, you know, in a long while. And uh, I'm sure he golfed and did some other activities. But one day just joking the way Sparky always was when you understand his humor and everything about him was he said, uh, he said the, the, the thing that I don't understand is that why would you there's training and there's ways to get in shape and to get ready for the baseball season but why would you um attempt to do something that you'd get hurt at so he he used to kid you know you can't pull fat <laughs> that was his joke that was his way of 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 you know just questioning that off-season training and pre-season training and getting ready for the year is all important. Uh, it wasn't necessarily his philosophy as a player uh, based upon <clears throat> the, excuse me, the era that he played in, but <clears throat> your, your performance back then was based upon if you made it through the season, um, you know, the, your best ability Every now and then we hear it said from time to time in sports radio and different, you know, uh, mediums, your best ability is your availability. Um, I think that's what was thought of back then. I mean, whether it's, you know, Mickey Mantle playing on the, on destroyed legs and uh, knees to Cal Ripken breaking Lou Gehrig's record. Uh, part of what made these people successful is your availability. Um, now, an interesting thing about that, you know, is again, just think about how the structure in which we function or the environment or society in which, uh, societal group in which we're attempting to perform. Once we decide 
that in, let's say, in baseball, once we decide that the so-called counting numbers are not important, the counting statistics, okay, are not important, and we start to break things down to individual components, okay, one, it's a definite measure of short-term success. Two, so a guy that spends um, a quarter of the season on the disabled list but his um, analytical numbers are greater than the person that played the whole season healthy and has better counting numbers. And then all of a sudden we're, we're voting for the Cy Young or the MVP or these different awards. And, and guys that sometimes uh, have 200 less at bats are winning these awards or pitchers with 50, 60, 70, 100 innings less are winning these awards. Um, we've now created that environment in which the short-term immediate gratification, how we, uh, you know, somebody stated it the other day that when we, uh, when we put so much importance on every single pitch, I think it was a, uh, a writer that was commenting on how the media, um, is reporting on the playoffs in baseball in the World Series this year. And it was like, we overanalyze every single pitch. The conversation is, this is what the pitch is coming. Here's what this thing, this is this. Everything is in the short-term immediate gratification as if everything, everything comes down to this next pitch as far as performance, not as far as focus. And then when a pitcher cannot perform that next pitch up to the levels that they feel appropriate, they replace them with another pitcher and then another pitcher and then another pitcher because the things that Jim Palmer spoke about, about your game plan and how to pitch deep into a game and how you use your pitch selection and your tools to accomplish that, that's been thrown out the window. So here's the structure in which we're asked to function. And of course now, Everything follows suit because if you're if you can't function in that environment, you, you know you're not going to be playing. You're not going to be on the team. Um, so, well, what should be? I know, like, and I, and I, I, I think I, I know. I definitely understand what you're talking about. So, our audience here, you know, they're they're locked in on whether they're watching it on TV or people in the stands nowadays. They're so indoctrinated into arbitrary things like spin rate. And spin rate can be important, but it's not. The way they're presenting it to the, the the regular fan out there is, it's beyond them, and it's become a catch-all. Next pitch is important, but what what should people be focused on as they're looking at the next pitch? Well, from a player from a player's aspect, they should focus on executing the next pitch, feeling what they're doing, so they can repeat it, being part of the process, understanding that it's the next three or four pitches that are getting this hitter out. Okay. We, we've, we've created an environment where every single pitch we throw is an out pitch. All right. Um, you, you can't be successful long-term and you're not going to remain healthy long-term if that's the mentality, but that's, that's the structure and environment that we've created. And it's an outcome too, as opposed to um, your maybe your pre-pitch process. Yes, exactly. Um, 
But when when un, understand a lot of that is is uh, again our original thought was you know the societal or societal group considering the game of baseball whether it's professional or or amateur that starts to dictate how the people within that group function so the individual doesn't have a lot of control over that but that's just you know the nature of what it is but part of those perceptions originated in the thought process, for example, that a starting pitcher third time around is bet, you know, the, the uh, opponent's badge, betting average goes up by 150 points, you know, or 200 points. Oh, then we have to limit. And then we have pitch counts because we think um, we have on the professional side, we have a lot of money invested in these guys. We have to limit their pitch counts and their workload instead of the long term vision of we have to develop physically and mentally these pitchers so that they can handle that workload no we then reduce the workload well if we're reducing the workload uh just think of a basic training principle uh in 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 strength training if you're reducing the workload then you're going to increase the intensity well that's exactly what pitchers do today in the game so we've taken out the entire idea of workload and if you take that out we have to replace it with something so we replace it with intensity so every pitch is max effort every pitch is an out pitch okay and 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 again we're you know we're not going to solve that issue overnight um but my point as far as the importance of that annual periodization or that annual time off and rest for young players and then to get into some type of strength and conditioning program that's beneficial for that individual. So then let's say in January, um, in the example of the conditioning camp I run in January, you can continue to come to me uh, in a group environment or in a private environment, or you can do the things that I've taught you how to do on your own for January, which would lead into your uh I, you know, I'll use the term on-ramping, the, the specific different things to get ready to get into your throwing program. And your throwing programs were going to start tentatively around the dates that we've discussed. Um, and in, in, in going through all of this, if we use the concept of, especially the adults, um, we have to try to create a mentality. We have to and try to create an environment, both mentally and physically, where we can handle work. And in doing that, we then can slowly maybe um, change the structure, change the environment in which the game is being played right now, because people have the ability to do work. And this, Dave, in closing, brings me to one last point for today, and that's um. That's the role of the coach. And uh, one of the things that has been lost, I think, recently is that um, I'm just going to read some because when I first read it, it, I thought it was outstanding. It, It says the role of a coach extends beyond just instructing and developing player skills. Coaches also have the responsibility of creating a positive and supportive environment for their team. They serve as mentors and motivators helping players navigate challenges build resili- and build resilience. 
Coaches play a crucial role in fostering teamwork, sportsmanship, and respect among their players. Um, that's a lot of what you see nowadays is not going on. Um, now, I have one last story. It, and it, this is something I think happens more often than not nowadays. Um, a high school coach or junior high school coach or tells a player, well, if you don't play in the fall, you're going to have a tough time making the team in the spring. Meanwhile, the guy's also a pretty good football player or cross-country runner or maybe even a golfer down south. Okay. Uh, then we take it a step further. We say, if you don't come to my um, conditioning or do my off-season program, you're not going to be on the team in the spring. Then we get to... Um, if you don't play on my travel team, you're not going to make the high school team. I mean, these are all things that are being created by adults. And it has nothing to do with what I just read about the role of a coach. It's an adult putting young players, young athletes, in basically a catch-22, in basically situations that uh, emotionally and intellectually they're not necessarily ready for, and it becomes a crisis. Um, and think of those environments that these kids are now growing up in. No wonder that when they get to college and they don't get their way, they immediately want to go in the transfer portal. <laughs> Or, you know, go down to junior college or because they've learned from the environment and the structure that these adults have created that that is their thought process because it's a process of survival, you know. Um, I mean, to consider the fact, and, and I've seen it in multiple instances, that a high school coach will say, if you don't play on my travel team, uh, you're not going to be on the team in the spring. I've seen travel organizations say, uh, if you don't play in the fall, you're going to have a tough time. I'm going to give your spot away because I can't hold your spot till the spring. Or they hold a tryout in the fall. So basically you're saying, you know, you're strapped into, okay, I made that team. And if they find out that you try out for another team, they give away your spot. Uh, why, why does a young man have to make a decision? Why does a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old have to make a decision in November what he wants to do next spring? Uh, your answer. Yeah, that, that's the thing. Money. It's money. Yeah, but we create an environment. We create an environment, okay? And it's like this, okay? I've heard many, many um, great talks on the uh, if you want to say in a philosophical sense of very people far more intelligent than I, uh, on different topics of, um, you know, morality, emotional and intellectual maturity. Uh, and then how, where it comes into play in the rise in technology. So you can get very deep and you can talk about, you know, like, uh, stem cell research or, or, 
or cloning food or, or different like that. And, um, you know, I, I remember a story back when the, when a local police department um, knew that uh, some place had become a crack house. So they decided to put cameras up to see who was going in and out of the, this house, this uh, apartment building. And uh, one of the things I asked at the time is that um, I, I, uh, I understand that you're using the newfound technology in order to help you uh, hopefully do the right thing. But um, in a local police department, who, who are the people that are watching that tape? An individual. The individual watching that tape, do they have the, the, the moral, emotional, intellectual maturity to um, use that modern technology properly? I don't know, all right? Um, next thing you know, a social worker goes into that building to deliver free turkeys, and now he's a person of interest. <laughs> See, these are the things. So um, these are the environments we create. These are the processes in which we start to dictate to the young children, the young players. And then that young player, why would that young player um, decide to trust any coach that he deals with why would that young tr player, um, even on a professional level, wh why would that young player uh, start to think that the people that are telling him things to do uh, are doing it for their benefit? Okay. So then, of course, we're going to jump around and find the environment that we feel, you know, uh, more comfortable in. Uh, of, of, of course, there's many times that we're going to decide to, uh, you know, walk away from maybe some adversity and learn to mentally and physically handle it and then grow in our ability to accomplish work successfully. And we're, we're, this is what we're doing as adults to produce this type, these type of things, you know, um, it's a vicious circle. Like it's, uh, it, and there's, there's now families that there, there are instances where yeah kids just got to get out uh, jim cotton i talked about one yesterday where kids it's it's not healthy they need to get away but now parents have taken it to a, the nth degree where they almost start shopping their kids around and instead of like you're talking about if there's an if there's a an adverse situation and you're searching for that comfortable coach that's that's cool that's good to do but there's parents that if their kids the you know not deem the the shortstop and i'm using air quotes on an audio only but then they're they're moving him rather than compete for the spot or learn where they're deficient or learn another spot or be comfortable with that they'll go move them because um, these kids these kids are playing for different teams you 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 see it probably with with Seamus's team these these guest plays these I mean it, it's gotten into an entire layer of sports that I I, I understand it because it's not that deep but I don't understand it because it's not helping these kids out none of it is none of it at all no and. Some of what I see, mainly what I see, is that adults are, let's say parents, are they're stuck between a rock and a hard place because it's the environment created by these coaches nowadays um, that make it hard on them. They want to trust that person. They want, that, they want their son to be, son or daughter to be part of that program. But, um, you know, uh, even a 10-year-old 10 10 year level, uh, 
you know, everybody plays the same position. Nobody's rotating around. Nothing, none, none of the things that we've talked about in prior podcasts is being accomplished. Yeah. And they shouldn't have to choose between sports. They shouldn't have to, you know, if they get, if they, if they feel like they need a little bit of time off during the off season. Yeah. They should be able to take that without question. These are, these are emotional decisions and physical decisions that are being placed on these young, young boys and girls too, that they just don't need right now. They really don't. It's not helping. And, and like I said, if we go back to the original thought of workload, okay, if a coach in whatever program, whether it's high school and travel ball or little league or whatever it is, if that pro, if that coach had the ability to increase his workload, to increase his individual ability to do work, to function uh, successfully in doing it, improving his skills as a coach, improving the environment in which he creates, to actually understand and focus on what the true role of a coach is in order to help these, these young ballplayers that would trickle down throughout his system. People would want to come play for him. He'd have plenty of players. He wouldn't have to worry about having his tryout a week before his competition's tryout. Yeah, yeah. He wouldn't have to worry about telling his players if they didn't play in the fall, they can't play in the spring. He wouldn't tell the player, listen, in order to play on my, you just finished my fall season, in order to play on my team in the spring, you have to do... Uh, one to two private lessons with our other coaches during the winter. He wouldn't yeah. say, I understand that you could work out at home and do the proper things and save money for your parents and have your parents spend as little as $20 to buy one kettlebell. But no, you have to come and we're going to charge you $300 a month for the winter that you work out with us. If you don't do it, you're not on the team. Yeah, no, it's silly. It's it's uh, it's uh, yeah. P- parents need to just take a deep breath and become the first educator. There's kids, and um, yeah, it's 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 a mess all the way around. I, I don't like any of that stuff at all. It's uh, it's unfortunate, but we're trying to fix it here. We've got, I think, a great group of guys together, and obviously, uh, putting out the word as, with real voices of the game to try to fix these problems. We're not just banging a drum. We're actually getting out there and doing it. Like your can when when is your give the date to your clinic that's coming up? When does it start? Um, yeah, off the top of my head, um the conditioning camp will start uh the Tuesday after Thanksgiving. Okay. So I, I, I believe that's the twenty eighth of November. I could be mistaken. And it'll run um it'll run through December nineteenth. Uh Tuesday nights at seven indoors saturday at 11 a.m in the morning indoors and outdoors that'll be good for them that'll be their break from from school a little bit it'll keep them in shape and i encourage all those that are in that in in jim's region reach out uh we have it on social media we'll keep sharing it so that way you guys are aware of it and uh you know the the training's gonna be great i think hopefully next show we'll have a few more shows before that but maybe we can go through a pitching pitching schedule for kids that, that should be starting in this off season as well. So they can have an idea of what they should be doing and, and appreciate the words today. I think the, the messages are loud and clear and uh, hopefully, you know, our, our audience certainly is on board with it and 
I encourage our audience to pass this off to a friend of yours, this particular podcast, and uh, encourage a friend of yours that doesn't listen to listen to this one and see if we can, uh, we can just expand our, our voice and our vision here uh, one person at a time. So, Jim, thanks so much for a great show. Anything in, in closing you want to throw at the audience today? Get, get, yeah, uh, in, in closing, um, think about all the environments and different situations that we discussed today, the positive ones and the negative ones. And look at, um, like Dr. Kurdick says in his book, Win the Next Pitch, or I've said uh, many times, uh, focus on the next pitch. Um, we've spoken of, about uh, the book Flow and about being in that athletic state uh, where your mind steps aside and your body does what it's trained. Um, but we as adults are creating many, many different environments that makes it very difficult to focus on the next pitch. Um, and in order to be successful long-term at baseball, you have to be, have the ability to focus on the next pitch. And we do know that our focus increases when we're having fun and we're receiving some, you know, extreme joy from what we're doing. And yet we continue to develop the environments that it makes, it makes it very difficult for any of this to happen. Um, yeah. And, you know, in closing, that's the sad part. And that's what we're going to try to improve on. Bit by bit. And you're talking to two, two men right here who have played, have coached, and also have children right now that are going through it. So we see it from a lot of different angles um, for our audience. I think they know that, but it's important to remind them as well. And to that audience, thanks so much for your support of this show, uh, Toe the Rubber with, with Jim Rooney, episode 336. Thanks for your support with the whole network, 55,000 and growing, 74 countries, grassroots MLB front offices. Uh, as a thank you, we got you guys a nice discount with our newest friend, Blackout Coffee. Uh, we'll have it shared online. You can go to Blackout Coffee, type in David, D-A-V-I-D, all capital, number 20. You'll get a 20% discount on your checkout. That's for you guys out there that are listening. Pass it on to friends, too. Uh, we'll, we'll share as well. Uh, but uh, make sure you pass this podcast on. This was a, this was a, this was a gem here by, by Jim Rooney. Tossed a complete game shutout. Uh, didn't need any help from the bullpen like we saw last night in that debacle we saw on TV with the World Series. But uh, tune in next week and uh, make sure we're supporting that clinic out there. It'll certainly pay you great dividends. Jim, thanks so much. Thank you, Dave. And we'll talk to everybody next week. Shame. What the world's gotten to for people like me, people like